This episode of Navarra Live is made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navarra Media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, in order to fund independent, truthful media. Just go to navaramedia.com forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. Hello, welcome to Navara Live. I'm Michael Walker speaking to you on a Tuesday, which is somewhat unusual, and joined by Rivka Brown. Rivka, it's a pleasure to have you on tonight's show. It's a pleasure to be here, just down the corridor, Michael. Just down the corridor. We have this remote system, same building, but it looks like we could be anywhere. Rivka could be in Australia for all you know, but no, she's, she's just down the corridor. Coming up tonight, Sunak refuses to promise he will fulfill his own Stop the Boats pledge by the next election. We speak to an, an expert um, about that. And we've got a clip that shows more horror from the UK rental sector and how bosses are raking it in while the rest of us face our wages being squeezed by inflation. Stay tuned for all of that. First story. Last week, A-level students got their results, and this week it will be the turn of those who've just taken their GCSEs. And that means our politicians are taking the opportunity to talk about education. For his part, Keir Starmer has been speaking about the cost of going to university, and he's claimed that if he were leaving school today, he would not have been able to afford to go to university given the cost of living crisis. Now, I'm often a little suspicious that Starmer might be overstating his working class origins somewhat, um, but putting that to one side, because we haven't done an, an investigation into his childhood income, um, it's important to know. I mean, he is, of course, making an important point here. In a statement released overnight, he said this, that ambitious and successful students are making decisions about their next steps based on costs and their financial means should shame the conservatives. Tory economic failure choking off the dreams of the next generation is a deep betrayal of aspirational Britain. Talent and aspiration should drive young people, not the affordability of rent or soaring food prices. I vividly remember the excitement of moving to Leeds to study law. It was a financial stretch then. If I were a student today, I wouldn't be able to go. Starmer's mention of rent affordability is particularly important there. This chart shows how the cost of a room in a student let has increased over the last year. You can see that in London, annual rents have gone up from around £8,000 to over £9,000. In other major university towns and cities, annual rents are between four and 6000 but they have gone up considerably everywhere. Meanwhile, the maximum maintenance loan for a year is £13,000 in London and £10,000 elsewhere. So even on the maximum loan, so that's means tested, that's if your parents are on low incomes, students will be left with only around four or five grand to live off for the rest of the year. Now that's got to cover food. And you know, I'd like to think that students should be able to afford to go out in the evenings as well, right? This should be a formative time for people. Um, significantly, this will be a much harder situation for this year's cohort than those who went before. That's because the maintenance loan has only increased by 2.8% this academic year, which is well below inflation. So inflation is currently at 6.2%, but increases in rents, as you've just seen, are much, much higher than that. For an idea of what that all means in practice, watch this clip of a student at York speaking earlier this year to Channel 4 News. When Sabiksha and her friends started looking for a home for second year, they couldn't believe the spiralling cost of housing in York. We were finding properties that were extortionate for me. It was 179, 181, around that benchmark, and that was the cheaper properties. And if you were to take that property, how much money would you have to live off? 15 pounds left. 
for the entire term. Maintenance loans are available to students in the UK based on their family income. So Biksha is receiving the highest amount possible. I should be able to pay my rent and have surplus money on the side to get me through the weeks. I've had to spill a lot of my life story to people and been like, listen, I, my parents and I, we can't afford this and I can't afford this. But what were your options? It's literally to the point where I've thought about dropping out. I love the course I'm doing. I love the university. But I'm really considering, is it worth it? What would that have meant to you to have to drop out? <sighs> to be honest, like a great deal. My parents are both refugees. They came to this country to provide for a future for me and my sister. It would mean a lot for them to see me on that stage, graduating, and that's all they've worked for in life. Yeah, it's, it wasn't a possibility, but it was something I was clearly thinking about. How much time do you think you've spent worrying about money? Every day, every single day. It's just so, so depressing and so unnecessary, right? Young people should be focusing on studying, meeting friends, getting a good foundation for life not housing costs, or the general cost of living, it sounds like, in that situation. It's good, of course, that Starmer is highlighting that challenge, but not everyone will see the Labour leader as an ally of students. And that was a point put to him today by James O'Brien on LBC. You know, if the cost of living crisis that we're now living through were the position when I was just picking up my A-level results, then I don't think I would have been able to afford to go to university. I do remember a yeah. Labour leadership candidate called Keir Starmer pledging to abolish yeah. tuition fees just three years yeah. ago. What happened to that? Yeah, well, look, uh, look, um, I do think the current scheme is unfair and ineffective, and that's why we will change it. So the current scheme will be changed by an incoming Labour government, and we'll set out our plans. But there's no getting away from the fact that in the intervening years, the last two or three years, huge damage has been done to our economy. And we therefore cannot make funding commitments that we can't, um, you know, costs that we can't show where the funding is coming from. We know, if you look at what Liz Truss did, she, she experimented with, you know, unfunded commitments. In her case, it was tax breaks um, for the wealthy. And you saw the impact on the economy. One of the women I was speaking to this morning, um, two-income families, said their mortgage is going up £600 because people are still paying the cost. So I'm not going to pretend that there isn't huge damage to the economy. And, and that has meant that some of the things that, you know, an incoming Labour government would want to do, we are not going to be able to do in the way we would want, when we would want. But okay. it doesn't mean that we're going to leave the current system as it is. Another clip that just shows sort of Starmer is probably the most lucky politician of our lifetime so far, right? He goes into a leadership election promising loads of things that he obviously wasn't going to keep going into a general election. Obviously, he's not dropping these policies because of the pandemic or because of a budget from Liz Truss. He's dropping these policies because he thinks that they would be a potential line of attack from the Conservatives. Whether or not we had COVID or a Liz Truss government, those would still have been a potential line of attack from the Tory government if he was planning on massively increasing spending compared to them. So it has nothing to do with COVID. It has nothing to do with uh, a very brief, I must say, economic crisis caused by Liz Truss. This has everything to do with him trying to make sure that it's difficult for the Tories to attack him. Now, whether or not you think that's sensible, it's up to you. Um, I, I think all I'm saying is he's been very fortunate that he can point to COVID when it's obviously got absolutely nothing to do with that. And it's, you know, it might seem credible to some people, I'm not sure. Um, of course, Keir Starmer is promising that there will be some changes to the system, obviously not the abolition of tuition fees. I suppose my position here is, I mean, I don't think you should lie. I don't think you should make stuff up in your leadership election and then just drop it all for spurious reasons. I do think that the living costs of students is actually a bigger priority um, than 
fees, right? Because fees aren't paid up front. Very, very annoying, as we talk about all, all, all the time on this show. The idea that a 9% marginal rate for people to pay back their student fees is just something that's that's normal and unremarkable, like David Willits wanted you to think. That's nonsensical. But I don't think there is much evidence it's stopping people going to university. I think that the cost of living for current students is a more acute problem. So while it's disappointing Labour aren't getting rid of fees, it is very, very important that they're pushed to do something quite ambitious when it comes to funding and the living costs of students. Um, Rivka, what's your take on this? Um, do we know anything more about Labour's potential education policy than we did, say, yesterday? No, in short. I mean, we heard in May um, from Labour and from Starmer's team that they were considering replacing uh, tuition fees with a graduate tax. Now, this is really just what we have repackaged and sold back to us. It's like the epitome of, of Labour's lack of imagination. As you say, uh, tuition fees already function as effectively a tax on graduates' income. Um, although I do maybe disagree with you um, in that I do think that the idea of £30,000 upfront, even though it isn't upfront, as you say, is very off-putting, particularly to people from poorer backgrounds. I was looking at some data just today that showed that children from low-income families, almost half of them are worried about their family's financial situation. You know, the, the massive sums of money with lots of zeros at the end is a major fear factor, I think, for, for people from poorer backgrounds. So I do think that maybe changing the way that it's presented could make a difference, but a really, really marginal one. Ultimately, we do have to do something about tuition fees. We're I think the fifth most expensive place to study in the world, you know, after the US, Canada, New Zealand and Australia, are, are, the cost of studying in the UK is just totally out of control, much like the cost of renting is out of control. And for students, obviously, they're facing both of these issues. So as you say, uh, tuition fees are not the only thing that Starmer could do. Starmer could also, for example, introduce free broadband to make students' cost of living cheaper. But we know who had those big ideas, Jeremy Corbyn. And if there's one thing that Keir Starmer doesn't want to do, it's to be seen as remotely socialist, even though literally those words are what are written on his Labour Party membership card. You know, I think what we have to remember is that, as you say, this is not about the actual cost of anything. This is about presenting himself as fiscally responsible, where Liz Truss was fiscally irresponsible and not handing the Tories um, an attack line. And whether or not that's strategic is is, is an open question. As you say, um, he's, he's kind of allowing the Tories to kind of uh, dig their own grave. But on the other hand, perhaps he's also turning away the, the millions of, of young people in this country that, that voted for Jeremy Corbyn and that could, in a, in a kind of potentially close election in 2024, have, have some deciding um, vote. And so I think what we have to, to, to actually look at is, as you say, like how, how affordable is it to actually um, scrap tuition fees and how, how pie in the sky is the idea of, of radically, of, of just sticking to the thing that he said he would do in his, you know, 10 pledges or whatever it was, you know, the, the cost of scrapping tuition fees is estimated to be around eight billion pounds. That might sound like a lot of money, but it's it's less than you would make from just making capital gains tax the same as income tax. The government's just chucked an Australian company over a billion pounds, like 1.6 billion pounds, just to, just to, uh, supply asylum barges. You know, these are not vast quantities of money. And also, we also have to think about the return that Britain would get get on an investment in, in, in kind of graduate attendance at university. You know, we know that 
investing in higher education, the more highly educated a workforce, the more productive it is. Britain is the second slowest, uh, has the second most sluggish productivity of any G7 state. It's an advanced economy. It should be far more productive than it is. But the reason, one of the major reasons that the UK can't improve its productivity and can't therefore increase the size of the pie that um, we then share with everyone increase budgets for things like education is because we don't educate our workforce. It's a kind of, it's a vicious cycle where we undereducate the population because we say that it's not affordable. And then the population can't then produce the economic value of other advanced economies. So it's, it's totally uh, sort of mind boggling logic that it's too expensive to invest in education. Investing in education is one of the most efficient, smart ways that a government can spend its money because you're literally just making the economy work better, work more more smoothly. But ultimately, he's just, he's so an, allergic to the idea of being seen as uh, a, a kind of um, a big ideas man. He so badly wants to be seen as someone who is like the blandest, safest option that he is cutting off his nose to spite his face. I disagree with you on the the loans being the same as a graduate tax because I, mean, I think the big difference between student loans and a graduate tax is that student loans means that if you're rich enough to pay up front, for example, then you don't have to pay the interest that everyone else pays. Um, it also means that it's not particularly progressive, so especially as they've changed the rules now, which means that m many more people are going to have to pay off those fees in full. It means that rich students and poor students pay a similar amount over the course of their lifetimes. If it were a graduate tax, then you could just put one, two, three percent on sort of as a marginal rate and then people would all be paying it forever so you would end up with a situation where wealthy graduates pay a shed load more than poorer graduates so i think it would be more progressive and i think also i suppose is it not difficult to argue at the same time that the problem is the concept of debt and you think that's what's putting off poorer students now i'm not sure we've actually got much evidence to suggest that is the case i agree it's plausible but if mm. what you're suggesting is this it's this concept of debt that's going to be scaring people away from taking a degree then why would a tax or calling it a tax instead of calling it a debt not make a big a big difference? Do you know, I, I think there is a material difference between those two things. Yeah, I suppose because it's incremental, right? That like people see the idea of having a small amount, even though it is actually quite a big amount, 9%, you know, we were talking about some of these figures earlier. It's actually, you know, 70, 80 quid a month. Uh, the, the Tory peer that you were uh, referencing earlier, you know, said that someone on 35k a year is making three grand a month after tax it's obviously not that much and and so 70 80 quid i mean that's that's a lot of money so nevertheless the concept of being taxed i think particularly if the tax is at a lower rate than than a repayment would be i think might be less off-putting for a graduate thinking about their long-term future you know in the same way that people buy things in, and to pay off in installments when they have less money it's even though um tuition fees as they currently work do operate in a similar way to a graduate tax, I think if you're not if you're not as financially literate, if you're if you don't if your parents don't have financial advisors and you know can't themselves um, reassure you that you know mummy and daddy will look after it if anything goes wrong, then then all you're faced with is the prospect of 30k, and you don't really know how that's going to pan out, how that's going to kind of um, shake down when it when it comes down to it. You also may not trust that you're going to be one of the high earning graduates um, from university because perhaps your parents don't um, earn very much. Perhaps you're, you might be the first person in your family to go to university. So I think there is, there is definitely, I mean, I, again, I haven't 
looked at the, the the kind of polling on this. I don't know actually if there is any polling. Welcome um, people watching if they if they want to post in the chat and we can have a look at that. I would be really interested in that. But I, I presume that people who have less money see the concept of, of of kind of 30k as the like headline figure and make make a lot of their decision based on that. I suppose you, you say you do think a graduate tax is better than the current loan system, but not as good as free education. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I think it's kind of, um, it epitomizes that the, the lack of imagination. And in, in, in a sense, it is, it is materially different. I think it would have like a maybe a nudge, a nudge effect on a prospective graduate population, a graduate tax as opposed to um, tuition fees up front, even though they're not up front. Um, but it's 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 effectively kind of Starmer just like slightly it's it's the reform agenda that we see from from this particular Labour leadership rather than any anything more more radical as affordable as it might be as as good an investment as it might be. Let's move on to the Tories. Tory Education Secretary Gillian Keegan has also been out speaking to the media today, and she's been celebrating a new plan for Eton College to sponsor free state sixth forms in the West Midlands. She explained the plan on GB News. Eton. Um, actually initiated this and they worked with um, uh, Star Academy that I've got a lot of experience in uh, the West Midlands and the North of, of really turning schools around. And they will provide support, uh, curriculum support, some financial support as well. And what it is, is it's 16 to 19. Um, and so it's for those children who um, they want to try and get into the best universities, because we know um, that still uh, some of our best universities are still dominated by uh, people who go to private schools. So this is um, a, a collaboration between the two to really help um, get those so children. It, it's not about getting into Eton. It's about using Eton expertise to get into better universities. Yes. <laughs> Even I was looking incredibly confused, presumably because he hadn't read, I mean, the notes on, on what he was supposed to interview the Tory education minister about. So this is, it's not to help people get into Eton. No, if it's if it's a sixth form college, it's not going to be it's not going to be to help people get into Eton. That wouldn't make any sense at all. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg is himself one of the many old Etonians at the top of the Conservative Party. Um, he was more impressed than Eamon Holmes, so he tweeted this in response to the announcement. This is an important initiative by Eton, which it is able to do because of its charitable status. The aim of education policy should be to make all schools as good as Eton, levelling up, not levelling down. Now, of course, I, like probably everyone, am in favour of levelling up, not levelling down. The problem for Jacob um, is that that's not what the Tories have done over the past 13 years. So we've shown you this chart before, a very interesting chart. It's from the Institute for Fiscal Studies and shows that when the Tories came to power, the gap between per-pupil spending on state and private school pupils was £3,100 per year. So private school um, students got £3,100 more spent on them than state school students by 2021. So after 11 years of Tory rule, that gap had risen to £6,500. So the gap had doubled. And that was principally because state school funding was squeezed. In fact, it went down, right? So the Tories said, oh, we're protecting the education budget. What they didn't tell people or what they didn't uh, broadcast as much as saying they're protecting the education budget is because there were more people going to school. That meant per pupil funding was lower. It had been cut. Um, Rivka, I want to know your thoughts about Eton sponsoring free schools. Is it the answer to educational inequality? Give me strength. I mean, like, I think what Jacob Rees-Mogg says is really salient here, and I think we should take it really seriously. The fact that he is saying that this move by Eton proves that it is a charity and proves that private schools deserve their charitable status is, is, is really the nub of it. 
private schools in this country enjoy charitable status because supposedly they work as a social good, even though obviously they they only work to entrench social inequality, uh, you know, impoverish state school or like justify the government's impoverishment of state schools, which you've just pointed out. You know, they are so obviously a social harm, but they enjoy charitable status, which means that they don't pay tax on their profits. They enjoy an 80% discount on business rates and they can get back 25% of the uh, donations they an additional 25% on top of the donations they receive, such as Rishi Sunak's 100k donation to his alma mater, uh, Winchester College, in gift aid. So like, fantastic. And, and but in order to uh, justify to the public, uh, you know, to, to the general public, their charitable status, which is a massive theft of public money, and you know, equates to you know the tens. I think that something like three billion pounds a year they make in 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 tax uh, uh, deductions. In order to justify this, they need to do to be seen to be doing good works. You know, I remember um, the local private school um, in the area where I grew up um, invited my school, which was a state grammar school, to come to um, university uh, like kind of prep sessions to like help people that were going to apply to to um to English at university in my case and uh little did we know we had been invited to these sessions but only to the second half of them so they were like the first the first few are just for our kids but then you can go you guys can maybe tag along to the to the second half I also know of private schools that like occasionally will let the local state school use their state-of-the-art uh, swimming pool private schools in this country have more theaters than the West End does just to contextualize. So the this idea that like char the the uh, private schools are charities because they occasionally give like the tiniest crumbs to the like local peasantry is an absolute laughing stock. But I think that 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 they're doing it and they're doubling down on these kind of like charitable PR moves because they know that late one of the, the the kind of policies that has been floated in the Labour Party is removing charitable status in order to bring in the kind of money that it would cost to make tuition fees to abolish tuition fees for example so it's so it's it's a kind of um it's a way of preempting preemptively justifying the charitable status that that private schools have quietly enjoyed for many many years now but increasingly you know with the cost of living crisis um i imagine people will be kind of enraged when they discover. I don't think most people in this country even realize that that we do have a, a bunch of charities known as Eton and Winchester and, you know, rugby in this in this country. Um, but I think, you know, fundamentally, the, the idea of Eton cleaning up uh, the mess that it has made in the in the education system, the mess that it and other similar uh, sort of public schools and private schools have made in the education system is laughable and is laughable for, for, for one obvious reason. It's not in their financial interest as businesses to create an education system that is equal because then what competitive advantage would they have as fee-paying schools? They have to retain um, an edge, a competitive edge over private schools, over um, state schools, I should say. Um, otherwise, what's the point of even having them? So yes, they'll give us handouts every now and again to keep the plebs from, from rising up or whatever, but, but there's absolutely no way that Eton can be, can be trusted to actually, to genuinely want to change um, the school system uh, because, because then it would just kind of write itself out of existence. I mean, 
Obviously, that is the solution. If Eton did want to genuinely change the, the school system, then it would abolish itself. We literally saw a, a UK philanthropic uh, foundation, Lan Kelly Chase, doing that earlier this year, saying that philanthropy is part of the problem that creates inequality, uh, in part because it justifies some people being really rich. Oh, well, these people deserve to be really rich because then they'll then they'll give handouts to the poor. So, you know, Eaton's giving this kind of charity in the form of creating these six forms reinforces the notion that it deserves its wealth because it, it is the best arbiter of how to disperse it. Um, but I think also, like, finally, I, I suppose we should we should say that, like, you know, it's a liberal mo model of development, right? We do not need a small number of children to join the ranks of Eaton and going to Russell Group universities or Oxbridge. We need all students to have a good baseline education that is that is the same across the board. We don't need Eaton giving handouts. We have a, an organization that gives handouts to schools in this country, and it's called the Department for Education. Mainstream media in Britain isn't meant to keep us informed. It isn't about relaying facts or providing useful context. More often than not, it exists to serve the rich and the powerful. But we say, fuck that. You funders, listeners like you who have chosen to back independent, truthful media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you, so thank you. Let's go straight on to our next story. Rishi Sunak has made stopping small boats crossing the channel one of his five key priorities. Yet speaking on Monday, he didn't sound confident it could be done. Asked whether the crossings would end before the next election, he said this. I want it to be done as, as soon as possible, but I also want to be honest with people that it is a complex problem. There's not one simple solution and it can't be solved overnight. And I wouldn't be being straight with people if I said that was possible. But what I can say that for the first time since the small boats uh, crisis emerged, numbers are down. So this year, the number of people crossing is down on last year. That's the first time that's happened. That shows that our plans are starting to deliver. But of course, we've got uh, more to do and we're going to keep at it. It's one of my five priorities to stop the boats. We've passed tough new laws in Parliament that when they come into force will be able to help us make a big difference on this problem. Um, but as I said, uh, this is not going to be solved overnight and we will keep at it. So Sunak doesn't sound too confident his policies will have the effect he promised with that stop the boats pledge. Talking about being real with people. You were the person who made your pledge five stop the boats. Now you're saying it's not possible, right? Um, of course, though, it does seem um, like it is impossible. And a group who agree with Rishi Sunak are the Institute of Public Policy Research. Now that think tank has released a new report looking at the likely trajectories of both channel crossings and the asylum backlog between now and 2025. So the intray of whichever um, party comes to power after the next general election. And they find that Sunak's ambitions are unlikely to be met. So they say, and um, this will be the case regardless of whether the courts approve the government's plan to remove asylum seekers to Rwanda before being processed in the UK. So whether or not the courts say they can do it, these guys think it's not going to make too much of a difference. Now, the report offers five possible scenarios. I'm not going to read you all five, just the two they consider the most likely. Um, so this is their scenario two out of five, but this is um, the one they think is likely. Rwanda plan is ruled lawful and government introduces key provisions of a legal migration act. However, logistical barriers make removals challenging. Number of arrivals slows a little, though unclear why. Build-up of limbo asylum population, as well as a growing undocumented population outside home 
office accommodations. That's one option they think is likely. Um, in this scenario, the limbo asylum population, that's people who arrived here irregularly and hence are ruled inadmissible for refugee status by the Illegal Migration Act, but who at the same time can't be removed from the country very easily because Rwanda is going to take people in, in the hundreds, not the thousands, right? Um, the second scenario they think is, is, is reasonably likely is the following. Rwanda plan is ruled unlawful, and so the government holds off introducing the key provisions of Illegal Migration Act while searching for new deals and seeking to improve the plan with Rwanda. Number of arrivals continues at similar pace. There are calls for the UK to withdraw from the ECHR, so the European Convention on Human Rights, but the government faces paralysis. So whether or not um, the Rwanda plan comes to fruition, um, the IPPR, this report, um, says that won't make too much of a difference. Um, helpfully, I'm joined now by the author of the report, Marley Morris. Welcome to the show. Um, talk us through the key argument you're you're making in this report. I've gone through some of your, well, some of the key arguments, but it's obviously a, a meatier report than I've been able to to put forward um, in this short space of time. Hi, good evening, Michael. I thought that was a pretty, pretty thorough um, uh, assessment to start with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the core argument in the, in the report is that basically under any of the scenarios we look at, it's very likely that the number of arrivals um, to the UK, people on small boats, people coming through uh, clandestine means, um, it's very likely um, that under any of those scenarios, the number of arrivals will outpace the number of removals. Um, so even if uh, Miranda um, is uh, ruled lawful, the, the, the practicalities of actually removing people at scale um, just make it make it seem very implausible that you'd be able to remove people um, in very large numbers. Um, you know, Miranda only um, has uh, been accepting asylum claims in the hundreds um, in recent years. Um, the UK has only been removing, um, 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 making asylum removals in the in the hundreds as well. So you'd have to have this dramatic kind of scaling up. I mean, so I mean, uh, aside from the kind of ethical, deep ethical questions about the plan, just in terms of pure practical terms, it seems very hard to see how you could remove people at scale. And so the, 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 the impact of that is you've got this very um, large population of people in the UK who are in limbo and they can't be, as you said, they can't be um, removed, they can't be um, uh, admitted into the asylum system, they're basically just stuck, they can't work, um, they can't claim benefits, they, they're likely to be in home office accommodation and receiving very minimal um, um, support um, and uh, it, it's possible that they may end up undocumented or working in the informal economy and actually it's a real headache, it's bad for to the people involved, it's a, it's a real Real crisis for them, then it's a real it's a real crisis for the Home Office too, because they have basically got this large group of people um, stuck in the UK, which they can't do anything about because they can't. It's not like now where they can process claims more quickly and they can get the backlog down. In this scenario, they won't be able to process their claims, so people are effectively just stuck in limbo indefinitely. I found that part of your report very persuasive. I mean, this idea of a limbo population. What do the government say is going to happen, right? Because they're saying you're going to have people who arrive here, if, they were, if they've arrived by irregular routes, they are going to be inadmissible for claiming asylum. But obviously people are still going to come because, you know, I mean, people, many people I presume would prefer to be inadmissible here than be camping in a campsite in, well, not campsite, camping in a slum essentially in Calais, right? So you'll have a bunch of people who are still coming here, but are finding themselves being inadmissible for asylum. As you say, for all the reasons you've just described, there's not really any way that the government is going to remove them en masse. So what does the government think is going to happen to this sort of population in, in limbo? Or are they just sort of burying their head in the sand? 
I mean, the, basically, the government's argument is this is going to have a major deterrent effect. So once we get um, the Rwanda plan up and running, if, if it's ruled lawful um, and flights are, are going to Rwanda, then that will basically mean that huge numbers of people decide, actually, we're not going to, to make um, the journey across the channel. And so that will that will kind of lead to the, 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 the boats effectively stopping. Now, I think this is very naive, to be frank. Um, we know, even since the Rwanda plan has been announced, since the Illegal Migration Act um, has been passed, since it's received raw assent, still we've had hundreds and hundreds of people um, arriving, and that hasn't stopped. Now, maybe you know a few flights to Rwanda might make some people um, um, pause the thought, and it's, there's no question that you know people, are, many people, are very terrified of going to Rwanda. That's having really um, traumatic impacts on people. So um, you know that's not it's not to dismiss that in any way, but. It, it still it still seems that given there are tens of thousands of people arriving each year, we'll still expect large numbers of those people um, to till, still try and make the journey, simply because then they know that most people are probably not going to be sent to Rwanda. Um, and let's face it, in the long run, um, if the government isn't able to make this work, then you can imagine the whole system basically unravelling and ultimately people having to be admitted into the asylum system um, in any case. So you can see that you know it's a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a kind of standoff between um, the government here where um, the only way for this to work is for them to show that it can work and if they can't show it can work at scale then the whole the whole premise of their of their policy could collapse I mean the inspiration they're taking isn't it is from Australia where they did they, they literally just sort of turned the boats around um, people who are arriving from from East Asia or Southeast Asia they turn the boats around and then sort of process people on an island and the reason why that was you know, very, it was, a, it was a strong deterrent. I mean, it was in, incredibly abusive of human rights. It was, it was very inhumane, but it was an effective deterrent because basically no one got to Australia, right? It wasn't sort of, oh, there's a 5% chance that you'll get to Australia and then get deported. It was, no one's going to get there, so the boats kind of stopped. Why, have, have the government sort of considered just sort of taking the boats to some sort of island which is in, you know, boating distance of the UK? Is that a plausible option that they might sort of, if they get even more grim over the next year or so? I'm sure they'll consider a range of options. I mean, they've already considered the idea of, of turnbacks, which I think is did have an impact um, for Australia. Um, but that's you know that's been um, ruled unlawful and it's extremely unsafe and would, would lead to I think um, loss of life. So I think it's effectively been ruled out by the government as just impossible to do. Um, so the other options are very limited because in order to um, uh, bring people to a, a different island or, or to a different country, you obviously have to have agreement with that country. It's very hard to, to get agreement with other countries. Um, obviously, the, the idea of the Ascension Islands was was proposed and it's been proposed a number of times in the last few years, but it seems very implausible and just impractical given the kind of, the, the kind of infrastructure there. Um, and then, of course, you know, we've got the, there's the Rwanda is the only country that's so far um, agreed um, to have a kind of re relocation deal. Um, but it's very hard because what, what the government needs to find is effectively a country that is willing to, um, to take um, people um, and process their asylum claims and uh, resettle them. Um, but at the same time, that country also needs to have a very robust uh, and effective asylum system in order uh, in order to be compliant with um, with international law. Um, and there aren't many countries that are kind of that, that meet those two conditions because if, if a country has got a very robust asylum system, they probably are accepting lots of asylum claims already, and they are not going to be willing to necessarily um, take many asylum seekers from the UK as well. 
I want to get up a chart from your report. So this shows the number of people entering the UK by irregular route since 2018 in the yellow. So the yellow bars um, are people arriving in small boats, which goes from basically zero um, in 2018 to 45,000 last year. I think we're running at a sort of similar rate this year. And so why has there been that dramatic increase? What changed between 2018 and 2022? I published a report last year which tried to explore some of the, the factors. Um, I don't think it's a kind of clear, simple answer, but it seems that there was um, a tightening up of, of various other routes which people used to take. So, for instance, people used to often come on the back of lorries um, or through kind of other clandestine routes. Um, and um, those those kind of those uh, were tightened up. There were lots of new security measures over recent years. And so people looked for other routes. And actually, we see that often in, in kind of migration. Um, when routes are closed down, people look for other routes, often more dangerous routes instead. I think that's what's happened here. People have decided, well, actually, we can cross um, um, the channel instead. And I think what happened is that you know, that started to happen in 2018. People started to, to make that journey. And because people made it across, I mean, yes, still dangerous. Um, people people die on that journey. But, um, but people didn't make it across. Um, and so... Uh, that meant that other people saw, well, we'll, tr we'll try the same thing, we'll do the same thing. And so then you started to get an escalation. And then I think you've got um, uh, um, uh, people smugglers coming in and saying, well, we can make some money here, we can expand this. And if you look at it, it's really um, quite striking when you look at the data that the, um, the number of people on boats has increased rapidly over the last few years. So it used to be the only quite small numbers or relatively small numbers on, on each boat that crossed. Now there are very large numbers, you know, sort of 50, 60 people per boat. Um, and, um, and so it's far more dangerous. And it's become, I think, a, a much more of a kind of industry as, as people smugglers have, have come in and, and, and kind of um, and, and, and made it on a much a larger scale. And so I think that's what's happened. It's become kind of almost like a vicious cycle as more and more people have kind of have, have, have realised that this journey actually works and people can get across. Finally, we've talked about your critique of the government's current policy or sort of at least its current messaging. I don't know if we can even call it a policy considering that it's got so many holes in it. Um, what would be your proposed solution um, to this challenge? We're going to be publishing um, another report looking at this in more detail later in the year. I think our, our kind of initial thoughts on this are, I would say, twofold. Um, firstly, we think that one of the key reasons why people are taking these dangerous routes is that there are just simply a lack of safe and accessible routes um, at the moment. Um, we know, obviously, there are routes for Ukrainians um, and for people from Hong Kong, but for many other countries, um, including Afghanistan, where we promised a, a warm welcome, there are actually extremely limited routes to come to the UK. And so that's why people are often forced to take these very dangerous routes instead. And so um, you know, we're in favour of opening up um, safe, um, accessible, viable routes for people to come, rather than having to take these really dangerous routes across the channel. Secondly, I think, um, you know, rather than searching for deals with um, with um, countries further afield like Rwanda, I think the UK should be looking um, to its neighbours, to France, to the EU, and thinking about how to negotiate agreements there. Obviously, the UK has negotiated um, deals with France, but largely it's been about enforcement, and it's been a kind of race to the bottom. You know, how, how can we kind of make the UK and France as unappealing as possible for people? I think actually it should be more about okay, how can we encourage um, um, people to apply in France so that France has a good and safe asylum system, and how can the UK um, shoulder its own responsibilities and, and take people as well? And again, with the EU, I think there's there's a role there. I mean, obviously the UK used to be part 
part of the Dublin system. And I think the UK could look at um, how to renegotiate a deal on, uh, on, on Dublin. And the core principle of Dublin is how do you um, allocate responsibility for, for people's asylum claims? And I think um, the UK has a responsibility there to engage with the EU, to take it responsibility in terms of bringing people to the UK from other parts of Europe, particularly where they, people have family members in the UK, which is often why people are coming to the UK, because they have family members or particular ties in the UK. Um, and then, you know, you, you can have a fair system which is much more orderly and managed rather than this very dangerous system at the moment where people are crossing um, the channel. But you know, these are much more kind of practical, uh, pragmatic solutions. And the government seems to be kind of um, pursuing, I think, what, what we think is a very impractical um, um, and an inhumane policy, which, which I think ultimately is going to backfire on them. Let's go to our next story. More than half of British households are only one paycheck away from losing their home. That's a finding from Shelter, who found that 51% of Britons said they would not have enough savings to pay a month's rent if they were to become unemployed. Now, that's an incredibly stark fact. But of course, it's not only those who lose jobs who are struggling to keep a roof over their heads. Channel 4 News spoke this week to a renter called Priscilla. All packed up with nowhere to go. Priscilla has been looking for a new home to rent for four months now, since her landlord told her that he needed to sell the home she's lived in for almost two decades. We moved here 2005, so my younger one was nearly three, and my other one was seven. So, you know, we made this house a home. It's a home for us. And did you ever think that you'd have to move out? Nope. No, but I never thought, maybe I was naive as well, not thinking that he will, you know, he will settle one day, I don't know. Priscilla is now desperate to find somewhere new for them to live. But despite applying for 20 properties and searching at all hours of the day, securing somewhere new to live has proved impossible. You know, I will have viewing to go and view the house like I have one today. And then because there are so many people, viewers, and then people will offer more on top of the rent there actually is. So the land, it's the landlord decision at the end of the day and he will choose, um, I guess, whoever is strongly financially. And how does that feel when it's, you just haven't got that money? It's hard. It's hard. And you're working. And I'm working. And my son is working. So you've got two incomes. Yeah. Did you ever think it would be this hard? No, not at all. It's really hard to watch. I mean, she's been in that house for 18 years. Like, it's when she says that it's her home, like, it's the only home her children may ever have known. You know, as the, as the granddaughter of, of refugees, people who fled Holocaust Europe, it is insane to me that I, as a renter, can be made to leave my home at any moment. We have no full evictions in this country, something that is, is an anomaly in Europe and in, in, you know, in the developed world and in, in advanced economies and civilized society. Well, where for no reason a landlord can decide to kick you out of your house. We are a pariah state in this, in this sense. You know, in, in Austria, it's three years. In France, it's six years. In Belgium, it takes nine, minimum tenancies are nine years long. In Germany, you can't, evict someone from the, from your property unless 
you want to move back into it unless you want to demolish it or unless the tenant seriously breaches the contract. You know, the UK is unlike almost any advanced economy, almost any European nation in how despicably it treats tenants and 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 how forced eviction and forced kind of migration from your home effectively is is a normal commonplace part of of being a renter in this country but what's really interesting is 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 the fact that it's her landlord selling up priscilla is sitting at the intersection of multiple different problems in our housing system one is the kind of uh, regulatory aspect that we that we allow landlords to to kick tenants out way too easily. Something which, by the way, is only going to get easier. So there's a renters reform bill which was tabled earlier this year, which does some good things, like um, gets rid of Section 21 or no fault evictions, but also makes it easier for landlords to evict. For example, in the case of selling their property. Now you might think, well, that's that's all all well and good landlord's property, they want to sell it. But what if it's one of 10 properties that they own? What if it's one of 100 properties that they own? Is it fair then? You know, we have this problem that Priscilla is experiencing of of the fact that we've financialized housing. So it's now just simply an asset, you know, one of many assets that that a person might have. I recently, some of you might have seen, went and interviewed landlords um, about, about how they were finding the cost of living crisis. What cost of living crisis was the headline, I guess. We have landlords in this country that own hundreds of properties and see absolutely nothing wrong with that you know the fact that when i when i ask them well do you ever wonder whether you're owning 200 properties might mean that most of us will never own a single one you know they're like well why don't you just aspire to be like me well priscilla obviously isn't aspiring to be a, a, a fucking millionaire uh, landlord with multiple properties because she can't even afford to, to rent a single property. But so yeah, so she's the she's the product of uh, a massive uh, financialization of the housing market, but then also over reliance on landlords. The fact that um, Priscilla's landlord is just selling up is is ultimately due to the fact that she has a private landlord. Because of the sale of social housing stock by Margaret Thatcher through the right to buy scheme, we've massively contracted the stock of social housing and allowed private landlords to fill the gap. Now, these are just individuals with whims, just like you or I. And millions of us private renters, including Priscilla, are now at the mercy of individuals who might decide to sell up one day, won't let you have a pet the next day, will increase your rent by 30% the next day. You know, we are we are basically at the whims of, of, of people who we have totally accepted can act in these in these completely barbaric ways. But I think there's also something interesting here, which is why does the Conservative government want to allow a situation where millions of people in Britain are one paycheck away from destitution, one paycheck away from being on the streets? It's totally so that we can so that they can keep us all in line. Because if you're in a pay dispute, if you're a railway worker, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, and you are one paycheck away from being homeless then you're not going to ne- negotiate a pay rise, then you're going to back down. Then you're not even going to, if you're in another profession, even dare to unionize or dare to ask for more because you're absolutely terrified more than you are of not being able to uh, um, you know, afford small luxuries in your supermarket shop. You are terrified of losing your job and within one month being on the streets. Final story. Remember this. What we can do is try to prevent 
it becoming, it's spreading, it become, inflation spreading, inflation becoming more ingrained in the system. You're trying to get into people's heads and ask them not to ask for too high pay rise. Well, is, is, is broadly, I mean, broadly, yes. Uh, really? I would say that. In the sense of saying, we do need to see in a moderation of wage rises. Now, that's painful. I don't want to, in any sense, you know, sugar that message. It is painful. But we need, we need to see that in order to get through this problem more quickly. That was Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England, speaking in February last year. To fight inflation, he said, ordinary people would have to refrain from asking for pay increases, even if it was painful. Now let's fast forward to February this year, where Chancellor Jeremy Hunt delivered this message. The bank is very clear that wage pressure is one of the risks that could cause inflation to stay around for longer than we want. Uh, we will talk to the unions about absolutely anything except things that will mean that high inflation is entrenched for longer, because that is the stealth tax that is causing people's salaries to be eroded. It's causing a huge amount of anger and distress, and we want to get it out of our system as quickly as we can. That's right. The government would talk to the unions about anything other that inflation-busting pay rises. In other words, workers would need to take a pay cut. That was the starting position. That was unconditional. Um, finally, let's go right to the top. This was Rishi Sunak speaking this summer. There is no point, Laura, in me doing something that sounds popular and nice today. For example, on public sector pay, I would be giving with one hand and we would just be taking with the other through higher but, inflation but and interest rates. That's not the right type of leadership that the country needs. And that's week, not what I'm going to do. Andrew Bailey, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak did all get their way. Public and private sector wages have fallen in real terms by record amounts. And according to the OBR, the real household disposable income per person in this country is on course to fall by a cumulative 5.7% between 2022 and 2024. It's been grim for almost everyone and it continues to be. I say almost everyone though, because some in our society have still been raking it in, namely Britain's biggest bosses. The High Pay Centre has revealed that bosses at Britain's biggest firms received an average 16% pay rise in 2022. By studying company accounts, they found the median pay of a FTSE 100 chief executive to be £3.91 million in 2022, up from £3.38 million in 2021. It means the average earnings of a FTSE 100 boss is now 118 times more than a typical UK worker. Incredibly rank, despicable. On Good Morning Britain, Owen Jones explained why. Nurses are five grand on average in real terms poorer than they were in 2010. The paramedics are six and a half thousand pounds poorer than they were back in 2010. Workers overall, private, public, have gone through the longest squeeze in wages now since the Napoleonic age. In fact, it's, it's estimated in 2026, the average British worker will be no better off than they were back in 2008. And at the same time, bosses are paying themselves massive, massive wages. An average half a million per head. Well, and, and you know what? This comes back to the issue of inflation. Who is causing inflation in this country? Because if you look at the International Monetary Fund, the OECD, they're the bring together all the rich industrialised countries, the research points to the fact that a lot of companies are paying them, are using this to, pay, to fuel massive profits that are driving inflation. It's not wages, because we've gone through such a squeeze in wages now, the idea that ordinary people paying too much money in shops is driving inflation just is incredible. <laughs> yeah. But 
it, we've got to look at the top. We've got to look at behaviour. We look at the top and well, what do we then do? Because, of course, people can rail about yeah, the unfairness, yeah. they can be bitter. But apart from saying, please share that around, yeah. tax what them. can you practice? Yeah. Tax them yeah. properly. Andrew, tax what's the well, like but, on it? Listen, I'm not going to advocate wage controls because that's, that's, that's of the root of madness. But... It's ridiculous. While they're telling people further down the food chain, you will take 4 or 5% when inflation is still nearly 7%. It ain't right. Now, you know why I respect Owen Jones so much? It's not because he makes you know, those incredibly impressive arguments, but because he does it at 6.30 in the morning. Now, I, I, I can't possibly get up that early, let alone be remotely articulate at that time. Um, Rivka, let's not obsess about Owen Jones. Let's talk about the story at hand, um, which is um, that FTSE bosses have had a pay rise of 16%, while the rest of us have not only been told to accept a pay cut, but have done so. I'm beginning to think that the cost of living crisis is a little bit similar to the carbon footprint, a concept created by the capitalist class to let itself off the hook. We are not living through a cost of living crisis. We're living through a cost of capitalism crisis. I don't know how many times it needs saying, the, the rich have got richer during COVID. The rich have got richer during the cost of living crisis. The Ukraine war, you know, which contracted uh, the energy supply, was massively capitalized on by energy companies to the extent that CEO of BP called his company a cash machine. These, they're laughing at us. They're laughing in our faces. And we're there being like, mm, it's really tough that we're all in this together. I guess Captain Tom should do another like lap around the block in heaven or whatever. You know, we are not living through a cost of living crisis. The rich are getting richer. You know, the, the fact is, is that you, the, the capitalist class uses moments like this, moments of economic instability, mo moments of social um, insecurity to stuff their pockets. We know this, Naomi Klein wrote about it in the shock doctrine. It's a well-established theory. But yeah, we've somehow internalized in a really earnest way that, you know, we've all got to pull up our um, pull up our socks and sort of get on with it. It, it reminds me of the health and care, so health and social care levy that um, the government introduced um, towards the end of the pandemic to help pay uh, the costs of the pandemic. Some of those costs, of course, being the massive hundreds of millions of pounds worth of contracts contracts that they awarded uh, to their mates that they met down the pub uh, for PPE that literally is still probably sitting in warehouses somewhere today. And, and, and you know, that tax was, like many of the taxes in this country, massively regressive. And so the, the point that Owen makes towards the end, how do you solve this, tax the rich, is, is so, so commonsensical. We live in a country where you are taxed more for the money that you earn by the sweat of your brow than the money that mysteriously lands in your Coots bank account at the end of the month. Capital gains tax is, for the most part, less of a tax on people's income than income tax. And it's totally, it's totally common sense now that this would be the case. But in previous eras, the idea of taxing profits in times of crisis was, was also common sense. You know, you look at the end of the First World War, Britain introduced an excess profits tax similar to a windfall tax, taxing the companies that had made lo loads of money off of the war, munitions companies, for example. Why has it now become the case that 60 years later, something like a excess profits tax, which by the way, accounted for a third of the revenue Britain took in during that post-war period, is now totally unthinkable. We, we've been had as a society by people like the governor of the Bank of England, people like the CEO of Shell, who tell us that we're all in this together. Well, no, we're just in this. They're not 
taking, giving with one hand and taking with the other. They're just taking with both hands. That's a very good fact about 30% of revenue being from excess profits taxes. I didn't know that. Um, very interesting. Rivka, um, you've been very interesting all night. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Michael. And thank you everyone for watching this evening. We'll be back tomorrow from 6pm for now. You've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.